Hey, welcome back to the Balance of Power Roundtable, which is part of the Beyond Politics podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, I'm Matt Robeson. This is part two of a two-part episode that we recorded. You probably heard the first part in your Beyond Politics podcast feed yesterday. If you haven't, you can always go back and check out that episode. And if this is brand new to you and you're saying, wait, what first part? What Beyond Politics podcast feed? please go subscribe to Beyond Politics. We did a couple of really interesting topics in yesterday's show. The dire warning from New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu to his party to change their ways or risk uh, being doomed to electoral oblivion, perhaps forever. Uh, And we talked a little bit about the strange paradox that I covered in my Newsweek article last week on why Joe Biden is one of the most accomplished presidents in his first two and a half years in history, literally in history, and yet his approval rating is so low. And now you see RFK Jr. creeping up in the polls. And what does that say? What does that mean? So go back and check that out. But now, as uh, you'll pick up here in a second, we are doing something brand new that we're really excited about on this show. Hope you like it. And so uh, without further ado, well, here's me. Let's move on to a new segment that I'm really excited about on this show. One of the upsides of the fact that we now have 20,000 subscribers and climbing on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube is we have a really big interactive community that can throw questions at us and that we can give responses to and, and vice versa. We ask them for input all the time and feedback all the time. And yesterday we posted a question. What are your questions? What is on your mind in politics? And so we are going to do a listener mailbag based on questions that we received from our YouTube community. If you are interested in participating in a future mailbag, then just subscribe to the Blue Amp channel on YouTube and participate in our community polls and quizzes. And we will be continuing to reach out for listener questions and feedback. And with that, Let's go to the first one here. This is from Sherry. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. S-H-A-R-I, who asks, what do you think of SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, siding with the cement company against the union strikers, making them settle their differences in a state court instead of negotiations with the union itself? Kanji Brown-Jackson was the only dissenting vote. Thank you, Sherry, for the question. That's obviously a great summation of what happened here. The case was a lawsuit against the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Essentially, what happened was a the Teamsters went out on strike and Glacier Northwest Incorporated had concrete out in their trucks. The truck drivers went on strike. And because they went on strike and they returned the trucks without the concrete unloaded, it hardened and they sued the Teamsters for $100,000 in damages because their product was ruined. The Supreme Court in an eight to one ruling said, yes, you can sue them. This is not protected under the National Labor Relations Act. Paul Hodes, union member, former member of Congress and former assistant attorney general, you're our legal scholar. What did you make of this ruling? The first question is, if the concrete in the trucks hardens How do you get it out of the trucks? That's part of the problem here. Jackhammers is the answer. Go on. Oh, my God. That's a terrible thing. Okay, so we've got got some head scratching going on because this was an eight to one decision. 
the only liberal justice who dissented, Ketanji Brown Jackson, her liberal colleagues went with the majority that said the company could in fact sue the union. An eight to one decision. That's a head scratcher on the political side, given that unions have faced increasing challenges in our society and that the right to strike has been has been seen as under threat. And you would think that all the liberal justices would side with Ketanji Brown Jackson and basically say, look, the right to strike in this case is just more important and use that as some kind of overriding principle to find that the company could not sue the union because allowing companies to sue unions is throws a little bit of a cold blanket or a wet a wet water or a fire hose or i don't know it dumps a load of concrete on unions if the company can sue them when they strike on the other hand if you look at the particulars of the case and say okay the unions have a right to strike, but they could only strike, but they had to unload the concrete first, and then they could go out and go on the picket line. By leaving the concrete in the trucks, they they damaged property. And for that narrow reason, we're going to allow companies to sue unions under the principle that they're not immune from liability under tort law, and tort law is the law that allows for money damages. We're not. We're going to allow tort law to apply when striking unions damage property of of the entity they're striking against. So on that very narrow grounds, you could see the reasoning behind this decision and the reasoning that the liberal Supreme Court, two of the liberal Supreme Court justices joined the majority to, to cast this as a very narrow case. And so in the future, because you're always looking to the future, when a Supreme, when there's a ruling by the Supreme Court, you're always asking, what does this mean for the future? And conservatives are licking their chops because in the future, they see that companies are going to be able to use this decision as a, to go after unions and sue them. And the retort to that will be, wait a second, that was a very narrow decision. It was fact-specific because the concrete was, in fact, damaged by this. And but for the fact that the Teamsters could have driven the trucks, unloaded the concrete, it would have gone the other way. So we'll see what happens in the future. But it's not a happy day for unions in this country. I just want to point to, in my mind, this is a sensible decision, if I had to choose one word for it. What they're not removing the right to strike, they are saying, look, if you are a restaurant worker and you strike and all the food in the fridge goes bad, then you could be sued for damages for that. They're preserving the right to strike. They're just saying you have to pay some attention to the to damages to the business that you're working for. This feels like a very sensible compromise. Alicia, any other reaction? No, I just want to be clear what the claim here is, though, and I think it was a very sensible decision as well, is the claim is that the dri truck drivers let the trucks be filled deliberately before going on strike. That's vandalism. 
that they committed an act, a crime. They committed vandalism. If they, if it is true, and that's what it appears to be, that they deliberately let the trucks get filled just to punch a little bit harder on the company they were going to be striking against, you're saying, okay, you can't do that. Yes, you can strike. Yes, you can do all this. But you are not protected from deliberately committing acts of vandalism against the company you want to strike against as part of the process. I think it was a sensible decision. That was a finding of fact that hasn't been made yet, but you're. But I agree with you that while they haven't determined that it was in fact vandalism, what they're saying is you're not protected from the potential for that finding, and but it makes sense to me. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right, let's go to. We have another question here, and again, you can jump onto the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, and you can post your own questions to us, Kelly Golemba asks, what exactly does the Federal Department of Education do? Why are they not stopping the insanity going on in these states that are banning books, rewriting history, et cetera? Very good question. And I wanted to cite federal law to you in, in coming up with an answer. So the answer is that the role of the Department of Education is limited by the 10th Amendment, which reserves powers not expressly granted to the federal government in the constitution, to the states, or to the people. Education remains primarily a state and local responsibility in the United States. Out of the estimated $1.15 trillion that are spent nationwide on education at all levels, a substantial majority is coming from state, local, and private sources at the elementary and secondary level, 92% of funds come from non-federal sources. So what does the Department of Education do? They do provide funding. They provide, they collect and disseminate data and research. They focus attention on education issues, and they prohibit discrimination and ensure equal access to education. So they can help enforce the federal laws that Congress has passed prohibiting discrimination. They can rally American educators behind, hey, we're finding these kinds of problems, learning loss post-COVID. Here are the reading learning strategies that we find to be most effective. They can be a clearinghouse for that kind of information. And they do provide some aid to schools, and including aid to students, which they administer, especially at the college level. But they do not, for the most part, direct state and local education policy, which would mean that they're just not in a position under the law to do anything about book banning, pulling books from libraries, which is something that's so, happened in Florida. So it's an interesting question because I'm sitting here ruminating about what would I do? How could I move the Department of Education in their role as pre preventing discrimination? What could the DOJ, Congress, and the Department of Education do about book banning in the states? Is it possible to assert that banning books is discriminatory? And how is it discriminatory? If you're banning books because of their discussions of race, that could be seen as discriminatory. If you're banning books because of discussions of sexual preference, that could be seen as discriminatory. And if so, could it, does the DOJ intervene on behalf of the Department of Education, or does the Department of Education take a stance and say, we are not going to provide any federal support to states or localities where books are banned because those are discriminatory acts? No federal dollars can be used to support that kind of activity. 
That doesn't seem far-fetched to me at all. Uh, and I'm wondering what, how the, what the mechanism between the agency, the DOJ, and Congress would be to take that position. Hard to see Congress intervening when Congress is being ruled by the crazies who want to ban who ban the books. But anyway, those are the kinds of things that I think of. And if I was in Congress, I'd be asking my staff, let's take a look at this and see what we can do to push some action on that. I think everyone, if you think really hard, everyone should and would oppose the Department of Education choosing curriculum for school districts in this country. Let's not forget there'll be a Republican president again. There'll be a Democrat president again. Heck, there may be a third party president at some point like Williamson who wants crystal lessons in every classroom. You do not want the federal government to determine curriculum in school districts across this country. Furthermore, how do you do that? I'm from Hampton, New Hampshire. Are you telling me the curriculum in Hampton, New Hampshire should be the same as the curriculum in Los Angeles? It doesn't make sense. We've always believed education should be down to the closest, lowest denominator, which should be school districts. And in some cases, it has to be the state because they have to set some boundaries for what level of curriculum has to be achieved within each school for grades, for graduation, et cetera. But the federal government is in no business to be choosing curriculum or books for school districts across the country. And let's not forget, in, in liberal administrations in states a few years back, they were banning Mark Twain. They were banning To Kill a Mockingbird. Those right, shouldn't right. be banned either. None I, of these books should I, be banned. I get it. So, look, I agree with you about local control, I, and I always have. I'm from New Hampshire. I think local control is good. And there's a difference between the Department of Education dictating what ought to be curriculum and if Kissimmee, Florida decides to have in its curriculum, let's celebrate Adolf Hitler or let's ce let's celebrate the guy who shot Martin Luther King, because we want to we want a we want a curriculum focused on what we can do to hurt black people. Let's just say hypothetically it gets as overt as that. Is there any role for the federal government to come in and say, you get to choose your curriculum? But if it's discriminatory and dangerous, we as the federal government don't have to support it. And that's what we're, that's what we're saying. I, I think but you're both barking up the wrong tree. No, I that's think you're not both barking up the right wrong now. tree. You're, that's you're, so extreme. Yeah. And I, oh, I just, yeah. It's no, no, so, no, Paul, you're, it's so you're, extreme. You are, you are deliberately giving an extreme example to make a rhetorical point, but you're both wrong. I don't I don't agree at all that the federal government shouldn't have a role in education. That's a great quaint 18th century notion. It's leave it up to the local one room schoolhouse. Why is that good? Explain to me why when we're in a massive economic competition with China, the federal government shouldn't have some role in setting standards and yes, educational uh, curriculum content for American students so that they're prepared to compete in the 21st century against First of all, because competition. Why, no, why, it, it, I, I'm telling why you, I'm answering Hampton, your question. Why does Hampton, New Hampshire know better? Oh, there, there are 10,500 school districts in this country, and they all make up their own education policy, their own curriculum. It is an absolute freaking mess. We saw the consequences of this during COVID when every single school district did their own darn thing, and it was a complete and utter disaster. The same thing is happening, by the way, in the the normal course of doing business of education in this country. That's why we're falling so far behind our international competitors. And I think that for the most part, George W. freaking Bush, which is his legal name now, and Ted Kennedy had it right when they pushed together on a bipartisan basis. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
Yeah, no child, no child left, left behind. behind. It was bad policy. And it and I look, George W. Bush, one of my favorite presidents of my lifetime. That is one place I broke with him. I thought no child left behind was a terrible policy and a terrible idea. Look, you, you mentioned COVID. It's not true. Some kids excelled. If the federal government were running that show, by the way, it was the, Donald the, Trump's the, Department of Education the at the time. The results are in. The results are in. Okay, I had a kid terribly. in school. Let me explain. My kid's school did fantastically. Within one week, they had it up and running. <laughs> Excuse me, it was blocked classes. She did great. She's headed to college next year. She's president of National Honor Society. She absolutely took her own and thrived. And the school did an amazing job at keeping it structured, blocked classes all day, every day, just as though they were in person, but they were doing it on the computer like you and I. So some school districts hit it out of the park. My daughter's it's great. one of them. It's great that some did. You, if you you've think just the picked federal up government, a couple of pretty leaves if to you describe think, the forest. If you think the federal government would have done a better job, again, that was the federal government under Donald Trump, let me remind you. You're out of your mind if you think the federal government could have handled that any better than the states handled it. The it's party crazy. has hoodwinked America into somehow say, oh, local control. There's something wonderful about it. We've hoodwinked into America thinking that there is the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment. Yeah, we have. We've hoodwinked no, them no, into no, believing no, in no. it. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not speaking yeah, of, we the, have. of the we Tenth Amendment. We hoodwinked you, America. No, we made up I'm the Tenth Amendment. Of your we invented bullshit it. that, oh, local districts know best. They have the. Of course they do. Are yes, you saying yes. someone in Washington knows what's better for my child than I do? Are no, you going down that path? That That's exactly what you just said. That, that the collective knowledge of America is greater than the individual knowledge of 10,500 I get to go speak to my school board. Don't know I don't get to go elbow. speak to some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., who's a political appointee. I get to speak to the people who are elected by the people in my town, by my neighbors, my friends, my fellow taxpayers. I get to speak to them and say, this is what we think is right as parents, and they get to decide. And if we don't like I, the decision, we get to vote them out. Your expertise as a parent is here is how we should be teaching our kids. Oh, I because understand. Because I know my George. kid better than any teacher knows my kid. I know my Fact. kid. I don't want my kid reading about black people. I want every- that, That's Paul, that's a red herring. No one, you're, taking yeah, that's this, so silly. you're taking this in the direction of racial discrimination. That's not what this is about. This is about effective education. That's a red herring. It's a red it's herring. Not a re it's not a red herring. When in the course yes, of, of American history have we seen echoes of what the Nazis did in Germany with those pictures of the oh, SS God. guys leaving with books and throwing them into a pile to burn? Paul, it's the I'm same, sorry. It's I'm going to have to join Alicia right high roll here. No, it's not. No, it's not. Ron oh, DeSantis did ban books. Now you're, you're going, well, hey, I've got a new one for you. Speaking of Speaking of a radical suggestion, we have a question here. And look, it's a radical suggestion. I'm not necessarily saying that it's bad, but Kelly Golemba has another question. We're going back to it here. Kelly asks, can we eliminate the Supreme Court? If not, why not? Paul, can we eliminate the Supreme Court? Yeah, it's in the Constitution, I think. We do have the separation of powers idea, and it's really good to have a court system. Now, it's good to have a court system that works, and you can complain about the way our system of justice works, but except for the fact that everybody else's is worse, ours is pretty good and often gets it right. So it would be really hard if you eliminated the Supreme Court, you'd kind of lose our system of justice. So the answer is no. So who would I, be keep agree, a check on Congress and the president? I agree. I agree with the literal interpretation. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the liberty of interpreting. Kelly's question a little bit here by saying, I think that what she's functionally asking is when a court goes so far astray, 
can we, what can we do to restrain it? And I think that's a, I think the question is revealing and the, it is a radical suggestion, but the reason I wanted to include it is I think that when we get to the point where Americans are asking, wait, do we really need this thing? Is this thing good? That's a problem. And that's because one person does it because one person asks a question that with all due respect to the viewers and listeners doesn't make a lot of sense because who would keep a check on Congress and the president of the United States? Who would keep a check on in, what is secure in our constitution? In the literal it is our version, system of government. Yes. No, no, but because you've got one person upset yes. with a court because probably Roe v. Wade, and therefore it's a concept. It's not a concept because one person brings it up. It's a person bringing it up. No, it doesn't no, no, make no. any you're sense. Ta- you're taking the literal interpretation of no, like, but can you we just, just get rid of it? When people bring something like this up, it's a problem. No, it's not. People have crazy ideas all the time. No, this is reflective. Ask of Paul of, Hodes. Of, no, exactly. This is reflective of what in polling, which is that confidence in the Supreme Court has cratered by 20 points in the last few years. And it's reflective of the fact that, yes, you're seeing election results as a consequence. No, look, that's right in our system in this country that people get to speak through elections. And if they don't like what the court is doing, ultimately they do get a chance to speak out on it. But I think that what Kelly is identifying here is what you're picking up in polling. There is an undercurrent of a problem of legitimacy of the court. I believe in the Supreme Court. We need the Supreme Court. Alicia, you're right. We need a Supreme Court to adjudicate literally between the Congress and the president to restrain them, to act as a check and balance. If we have undermined the legitimacy of the court to such an extent that people could just throw out there, how about we just get rid of it? That is a problem. People don't have people don't have confidence in any level of government right now. If you look at the last 20 years, whether it's a judicial branch, the congressional branch, or the executive branch, the legislative branch, they have all come down. No one trusts government in any way, shape, or form right now. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying I'm in that pool. I'm saying that's a reality of the place we are. I'm the government. I'm here to help. All right. <laughs> On that delicious note, which Paul, I actually trusted when you were the government and dare to help. We are going to have to wrap it up there. Keep the questions coming. And for Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you next time.